So here's something amazing. I have no story for you this morning. Nothing. Just going to get going. If you are newer to Element, welcome. This is not normal. Usually I ramble for like five minutes. But if you want to grab a Bible, if you don't own one, if you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. look like this. If you open it up, you'll get some questions about uh, the gold leaf from what we're talking about today. And on the other side, you'll get the remix journey that Donald was talking a little bit about with some stuff kind of as a reminder of kind of what we're doing today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on events or more and then events in Uversion. You'll get uh, sermon notes, questions, announcements, all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me? Beginning of God's Word. This is Acts 11, verses 21 and 22. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who understand that we are sent, and that we are meant to be your presence in this world, and that people would come to understand and know who you are by how we live our lives for you wherever we are. And so we ask that we would bring you great glory, that your people would live in great joy, and that the gospel would always move forward. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we have three weeks left till we finish out the first half of the book of Acts. At this point, I still do not know when we're going to do the second half. I have calendared out what we're going to kind of talk about up through the middle of like 2018, and it's still not in there yet. So this has to tide you over. Hopefully it's been good enough, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'll be tied over. If it was bad, you're like, oh, thank goodness he doesn't know when they're going to do the second half. So, uh, Acts has been a journey to help us understand the beginnings of the early church, uh, their missteps, where they got it right, and how we as a church can also learn from their mistakes and the way that they grew and moved forward, how the gospel is lived and proclaimed. Uh, Element, Santa Maria, we are essentially like a transient community because of the airport space. Some people are here for six months, a few years, and a lot of people come in and they move out of the area. And so one of the reasons we do this, this series is we want you to be able to know what to look for in a church no matter where you go. Uh, the, the early church, as I said, they had some mistakes, they had some things they did really well, and we want to look at that of what Jesus calls us to be as the church. And so you find a church that's strong enough to admit its mistakes, but also strong enough to stick by the convictions that it has and the vision that God gave it. Now, most people, if you ask them an understanding of being a good Christian, I do that in air quotes, it's, it means we follow Jesus, we know Jesus, we love Jesus, we relate to Jesus, but this has also led a lot of people to the wrong conclusion that you can be a good Christian without being related to any church. 80% of Americans actually say that. Oh, I don't have to go to church, I'll just do whatever I want. The truth is that Jesus lived and breathed and died and rose from the dead to do everything he could to create a community of people called the church. Ephesians 1 says he rules all things for the church. John 17 says he sanctifies himself for the church. And I understand the church today and even in the Acts, the days of Acts, it is a mess. There's a lot of weird people in it. I, I get it, but you can't get rid of it because Jesus died and rose for it. He tends for you and I to live together as a body moving forward. I know the church can be tedious. I know it can be a pain in the rear end a lot. It can be hard, but that's because we are all involved in it. You're welcome. You are tedious and hard and weird. That, that's you. This is why we look at the Bible. It's why we look at the book of Acts with the scriptures guiding us to unveil the masterpiece of what the church is meant to be. Today we're going to do that by looking at a city called Antioch. For the first time in the book of Acts, the gospel is now preached to a very large city. Antioch was the capital of a place called Syria. It was the third largest city in the Roman world. So it's kind of like New York and L.A. and Chicago. If you like the DCEU, it's like Metropolis, and then you got Gotham. 
It's a little bit smaller, a little grittier, but it's got Batman. So it's kind of cool. All right. So Antioch was probably 10, 15, depending on the commentators you read, maybe even 20 times the size of Jerusalem. It is densely populated. It's bigger. It's urban. It's pluralistic. It's multi-ethnic. But it's also more racially charged than a lot of other cities. Tim Keller has this book called Center Church, and it's all about how Christianity was meant to be in cities. Historically, the bigger a city was, the more Christianity would flourish there. And in, in, the, the, in the time of Rome, when, when Rome ruled the world and Rome was trying to kill all the Christians, by the time A.D. 313 comes around, Christians made up 56% of the Roman population, even after trying to be killed all the time by all of these people. And that 56% was almost all in the cities. It's almost all in the cities. The people who lived in the suburbs, the countrysides, they were called pagans because the word pagan comes from countryside or farmland. It was the people who were in the country who were secular and polytheists and, and weird. I guess they still are today weird, kind of weird out there in the middle of nowhere, right? But the people from the cities, like the urban, the sophisticated, it's like, oh, man, those are the hip ones. That's where Christians were, and that's what Christians actually were. The more urban, the more dense, the more pluralistic, the more Christianity comes in and it flourishes there. Tim Keller writes this. He says, any Christianity that dies in the city isn't real Christianity. Any understanding of the gospel that goes to seed and dies and falls apart in the city wasn't the real article. I know today everybody wants to move. I'm going to move out to the suburbs. And when I talk about suburbs are still really, Orchid is still the city. Okay, you're not that far away, people. Okay, it's, you're still in the city. I'm talking like Tepescay. It's like my first neighbor is 10 miles away. It's like I just wave at him as I drive by. That, that's when you get weird, okay, because there's no one around you. And the more lonely we get, the more weird we get. You probably know somebody like that. I'm not pointing my fingers. I'm just saying that, that that's how it is. When the gospel gets to Antioch, some amazing things start to happen. Antioch is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Antioch is founded by one of Alexander the Great's generals. His name is Seleucus at the 4th century B.C. Now, the Roman Empire, when they came over, they make Antioch one of their central cities. They actually started to call it the Eastern Rome. Now, Seleucus named Antioch, he named that for his dad. His name was Antiochus, so there you go. What have you done for your dad? Apparently, you named a city after him, so what's up with that? You know, and, then, and what they did when they built this city is they built this wall around the city to protect it from outsiders. And when Rome comes in, they realize there's, there's Romans and Greeks in this city, but also in this city, there's, there's Israelites because it's close to Israel. And there's Africans because it's close to Africa. And there's Asians because it's close to Asia. But there's also Persians and Indians and Chinese people. Historian Rodney Stark says that there are at least 18 ethnic quarters in the city of Antioch. And the reason I say quarters is that, yes, Seleucus comes in and he builds this wall around the city, but they also came and built walls within the city, to keep all these people separated from one another because they knew that every race and every culture thinks it's superior to every other race and every other culture. And they realized that half the time people from all these races judge everybody else and they're ready to go to battle at the drop of a hat anywhere. And so what you have is someone insults you, someone steps on your robe, your donkey poops on somebody. The next thing you know, everybody in this group wants to kill everybody in this group. So bad America's not like that today. So the Middle East doesn't like that today. And the reason they had all these walls between these racial groups is that Antioch was trying to protect all these people from each other. They needed a fortress inside the fortress. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Some commentators believe that Luke who wrote Acts was born in Antioch. 
And so when the gospel is preached in Antioch, some things start to happen. It begins to blow the minds of the people in the early church. So this is how this section goes. Acts 11, starting in verse 19, which is where we left off last week. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that's Acts chapter 6, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now, this is what we've got to kind of start here that we work with. Have you ever been on the outside of a movement looking in and not understanding what's going on? Like, everybody has a language, and you don't know what that language is. You don't understand that language. Well, this is- Have you ever been on the outside of a movement looking in and not know what's going on? Have you ever been in a place, you all should say yes right now, and you all should say, thank God Aaron didn't ask me to do that. I got so many people mad at me for doing this. I mean, they're like, oh my God, I hate you. And I'm like, thanks, just do it. See, what you got to understand is this is what Judaism was like. For all of these people, there are all these words and phrases and worship that an outsider, they don't understand. And sometimes worship of Jesus can go too far a certain way where people say, oh, believe whatever you want. Don't worry about what the Bible says. Worry about what your heart says. That's horrible. But sometimes it can go too far the exact opposite direction where you're not welcoming anymore because you have words and phrases that people don't understand. They don't understand your dance moves. It's like, what's going on in there? And it gets to the point where the gospel can't go forward because you've got your own little club and your own little world. That's never what the gospel was meant to be. We must always be a people who speak of the unchanging truths of Jesus Christ, but also welcoming those who come in and doing it in a way that makes sense to the culture around us. See, things happen in Antioch that had never, ever happened before. The church starts to understand that the gospel had the power to transform anyone's life it came into contact with. The Jews, they were sent throughout. They thought, oh, we're just supposed to talk to Jews. Verse 19 tells you that. They just went and they talked to Jews. But then some started to talk to Greeks. And the Greeks started to follow Jesus. It really, since Pentecost, Antioch is the first place where you see large numbers of people start to follow Jesus. Up till this point, when they go out and speak, Christians were usually only the religious people. Those who understood, oh, we're waiting for a Messiah. Or those who were really good. And when the church starts preaching to non-religious people, these pagans, to their shock, these pagans are open, and they love Jesus, and they follow him, and they surrender their lives to him, and it's crazy. It is why I love when people say, oh, I'm not religious. I'm like, great, then let's talk about Jesus. 
I, I was talking to somebody just last week, and some things going on in their life, and, and I invited them to Element to get to know you guys because you're weird, and, you know, this person can be weird, and it's great being weird together. And, and I said, you know, we, can, we talk about Jesus, and he goes, well, I'm not religious. And I go, great, perfect, we're the best place for you because we're going to talk about Jesus because he's not about religion. And I got to kind of talk to him about these things. I mean, if, if you think you can find, uh, if you can find people who haven't been indoctrinated into anything, they're so open and receptive to the gospel. The amazingness of the gospel, it tends to call it the garbage and the religious and the non-religious both. And it seems many times the non-religious are much more open to the message. In Antioch, the church saw this, the gospel begin to transform relationships and transform lives. And there's all these different ethnic groups coming together, and they all start to follow Jesus. They start to cross the walls in the city to worship Jesus together. And we are told for the first time the disciples there were called Christians. Why? It's the only way to identify them. All these people from all these walks of life coming together worshiping Jesus. And at first, Christian, it was a slur. It's like, oh, you're like a little Messiah. You think you're so good. And eventually they were like, yeah, I am meant to be like Jesus. Okay, I'll, I'll be a Christian. I'll be a little Christ. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm supposed to be. And people start crossing these walls, as I said, to worship together. In Acts 13, verse 1, which we won't get to in our Acts series, wah, wah, but I will read it to you, okay? Acts 13, 1 says this, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. That list of people right there represent three continents and four racial groups. That's astounding. And these are the elders and the teachers and the pastors in this church. Everybody seems to have this idea that religion is just something that's a part of the culture you're raised in. That's all. But when the world first saw Christians, they're all Jewish. And it goes into all these cultures and all these people start to believe. Like if you went to Ephesus, they were following Ephesian gods and the Greeks were following Greek gods and the Romans were following Roman gods. And then this message of the gospel comes in, and all these people from all these places start believing and worshiping Jesus together. And it brings them together, because they become unified around the person of Christ. So they needed a new name. You couldn't call it Jew religion. That'd be offensive and weird, okay? And you couldn't couldn't call it Greek religion, even though Greeks believe, but not everybody who believed was Greek. So you couldn't call it that. You couldn't call it Indian religion, because more than Indians believed. You couldn't call it Chinese religion, because more than Chinese people believed. Because Jesus transcended culture, so they started to call it Christianity and the people Christians. Now think about this. Manhattan today in New York, the the average per acre of people who live in that city is 100 people per acre. 98% of all the buildings are more than seven stories high. The density of Antioch was probably about 200 people per acre. No high-rises, no toilets. No wonder they wanted to kill each other, right? Yeah. So what happens is, is they start to get along, partly because when someone got sick and you were in a pagan household, they'd throw you in the street to get rid of you, like, oh, you're dead, done. And the Christians would go by, they'd pick these people up, and they would nurse them back to health, because Christians started caring about their own sick as well as everybody else's sick. Why? Why? Because they live with the assurance that Christ is our life. He is what calls us into new life. Our, our righteousness is based upon what he has done for us. Because if you follow anyone other than Jesus, whether it's yourself or anything else, you'll always have this standard you will never live up to because it's all based on your own personal suppositions. You will never live up to it. Christianity is the understanding that Jesus becomes your righteousness. Yes, sometimes you stumble in your dance move. Right? Sometimes. 
but Jesus still has you because he is the one who is your righteousness. One historian said it like this, no wonder the early Christian missionaries were so warmly received for what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. As unless we live in and among our neighbors that are around us, you know, unless we stop running away from who they are, we're never going to see how awesome the gospel is in transforming lives and transforming relationships and transforming whole societies. You must live in among people because then they get to see your life and you get to see the change that happens in them. The rest of Acts 11 says this. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so. Send it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, what I want you to see also in the midst of this, what what did they do? They kept sending more people into Antioch. Eventually, Peter, John, Barnabas, Agabus, and probably a lot of others, they all reached this city. The church in Antioch will become as central as the church in Jerusalem. When the church in Jerusalem falls, Antioch becomes like the central church. And these people were sent by God into the city to be the presence of God there. You are sent into the city that you are to be the message of God there. And we have a hard time understanding this today because we live in a highly online society. We, we are in a society today that is built around advertising, telling you what your dreams should be, what your purpose of your life should be. And God speaks into our lives, and yet we get so distracted by all these things, go, shiny. And, and we start, oh, I really want to follow Jesus, but I need that too. Right? And we're always, this, our advertising is always pulling us away from our true mission. We have to understand what this kind of does in our lives. Advertising is always trying to tell you what your dream should be in your life. When the American dream outstrips God's dream for you, you've lost focus of who you're supposed to be as a follower of Jesus and I think as a person who calls yourself part of humanity. Advertising Day is always trying to tell you what your dreams should be. That's what ads do. They're trying to connect what God calls you to, your inner calling of your heart to stuff and things. It's a, it's a progression that kind of steals your imagination from being God's presence in the world. I want to, this is, I want to show you the first Macintosh ad from 1998. Just watch this ad. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. So inspiring, right? It's like, oh, man, yeah, I want to change the world. That's amazing. What should I do? Buy a computer. That's the whole point. It just it hijacked this dream that God has for you to make a difference in the world and connects it to a computer. 
to stuff. You got Gandhi. You got Martin Luther King. Guys who changed the world. Yeah! I need to buy a Mac. (laughs) That'll solve all of it. That'll solve all of it. It hijacks you. It hijacks you to take the dream God has in your life and connect it to stuff. Why do I talk about this, like advertising and all this deplorable stuff in regard to acts? Because we live in America. Christianity is meant to be about communication. It's meant to be about God's message in us going out to the world. And our message gets hijacked by things like dish soap. Oh, if you buy Don Dish Soap, you'll have a great family and your hands will look great and you'll have a husband or you have a wife. Everything will be awesome. Just buy Don Dish Soap already. That's what they tell you. That's, that's what they do. God uses a medium, us, you and me, to be his message to the world. Your changed life in relationship with other people in cities was meant to be the message. You are meant to be God's ad. At some time, God uses a burning bush, he used stone tablets, poets, prophets, donkeys, scrolls, because God is always in the business of communication. And we always, we talk about the gospel, we say things like the methods change, but the message always stays the same. The message of the gospel never changes. We gather today, today as a church together, and what do we use? We use amplifiers and projectors and electric guitars and, and all of these things. But, and, and that's part of proclaiming the gospel, but more proclaiming the gospel is you guys living outside of these walls in your lives, living as God calls you to live. I mean, that, that could be the technology we do today. It could be other states, but it's all part of the message. Today, we, we have a medium, and we use a medium in human life. It's called, it's any, any human invention that extends the human capacity in some sort is called a human medium. Like a, a will extends the function of the foot in circular motion. Glasses extend the function of your eyes. Clothes extend the function of your skin. The, the seat you're on right now extends the function of your butt. These are all things of how these things extend. Sometimes our understanding of technology, though, it can actually hurt the message. Like, has Facebook helped or hurt the gospel? Both. Both. Has the Internet helped or hurt the gospel? Well, both. Has the printed word on page helped or hurt the gospel? Both. It's both. There's always been a medium with the message. See, if you, if you look at something like the book of Exodus, you have 200 straight verses, and it's all about this thing called the tabernacle and God's house, and how all these things relate to other things. There's all these mediums in there. Don't you think the technology that we use today God is concerned about as well? It is. It is. But nothing is the same as human-to-human interaction, personal, with one another. You are an extension of God's message to this world personally. You are God's medium. In Mark 2.22, Jesus speaks of new wine and old wineskins, of the message of the gospel. And he says the container and what's inside of it need to actually match. The medium and the message match. This is why it's important for you and I to know how, how sometimes technology can get us to lose sight of what the gospel really is. Because most of the things in our lives are not as gospel neutral as we would like them to be. Let's talk about your cell phones. Okay, Everybody has a cell phone. A lot of you don't even have home phones. I don't. And if you have a home phone, it's like, weirdo, you don't have a home phone? What's wrong with you? Right? Or you have a home phone? What's wrong with you? Whatever are the words, one or the other. Okay. So there's a cell phone ad that came out a few years ago. And there's a guy, and he's in an airport, and he's all alone. He's always on these business trips, and he's missing his kids, and their kids are missing him. So at one point, he picks up his phone, and he calls. And next thing in this ad is his daughter is sitting there right next to him in the airport. Shane Hips, who's a former ad marketer, says all good ads will tell you the truth and a lie. He, he says this, if they didn't tell you the truth, you wouldn't watch, and if they didn't lie, you wouldn't buy what they're selling. 
Right? Okay. So the truth about this ad that it's saying is that a cell phone is about family and connection. It can connect you in places you were never connected to before. That's one of the truths of why we have cell phones. But this guy is also, he's lonely, he's dejected, he's not around his family, he wants to be with his family, so he picks up his phone, and his daughter is right there next to him. Because we all know talking on the cell phone to somebody is just like being there in person. That's the lie. That's the lie. Oh, no, it's exactly the same. It's not the same. The truth is we are connected to people who are very far away. The lie is that a phone is just like being there. And that's just one of the things in our current culture that we use. Can you imagine if you asked me to do your wedding, and on the day of you opened up a FedEx package and it's got a phone inside, and I said, okay, put me on speaker. You'd be angry. That would be better. But no, You'd be mad because, because being on the phone is not the same thing as being there. What it does is it strips an event of intimacy. And we've got to look at the things in our lives that begin to strip the personalness of the gospel and how we interact with one another. I mean, our digital age day has done some amazing things. It connects us with those who are very far away, but it also distances us from those who are very near. We spend too much time today looking down at our phones. Anybody on the phone right now playing a game? Like, yeah, that's how I stay awake. Come on, what are, you, what are you talking about? I mean, this this is what they do. Your cell phones separate you. You are physically there, but you are mentally somewhere else. This disembodiment has hurt the proclamation of the gospel because we start learning and teaching ourselves that our presence in situations is not necessary. Our digital age, it trivializes the power of presence. Do you understand how important your presence is meant to be in this world? How important when you invite people into your dance moves, what that's supposed to look like? What does the early church do? They write letters to these places, but they also send prophets and apostles and disciples to be physically present as these churches start to grow. It's why we believe we are sent to the places that we are. You are in your neighborhood that you are for a reason. You are at the workplace you are for a reason. We try to connect you in gospel communities so you have personal interaction with one another. Why do we think that God believes presence is such a big deal? Because God himself comes in the flesh. Jesus came not as more burning bushes and not as more clouds or earthquakes, but in the flesh. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, the age we live in is trying to tell you that your presence doesn't matter, but it does. God's presence affects the world. And he wants to affect the world through you and me and how we live our lives. That's how it's supposed to happen. We've got to become aware of how God calls us to be his presence in the world now. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God places his spirit in us so that we have his presence and we go out and become his priest to the world. Our presence matters. When someone is dying or someone needs help or someone just needs somebody to talk to, you can't email that or text that. I know you can try, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work the same as actually being there. You ever get in a whole tiff with somebody on email because they misunderstood what you wrote or how you wrote it? Yeah, how about text? It's like, why are you so mad at me? I'm not mad at you. All caps. Send. That'll really tell them. 
It's not the same thing as personally being there. We should be a people who are like Jesus, but in the context of Acts 11, we should also be like Barnabas. That's what we should be like. Barnabas, he does it right. He goes into the city, and he begins to live there. Part of the reason we keep talking about planting roots the last two years, and especially over the last four weeks, is we believe that God wants us to be a presence in our city. That's why we talk about Element having a permanent home over and over. And unless we as believers are going to live in the midst of our culture, which I know at times it's hard to live in. I get it. I have friends who have packed up from California and moved to other states and said, you should move here. We know what freedom is. I'm like, I live in California. I don't know what that means. You know, and I got lots of taxes. But, but I still believe here in the midst of this, we can be useful. I mean, if, if something more to the glory of God and more useful to the human community calls you somewhere else, then go. Maybe you live in a city and you have allergies that are horrible and they're killing you or your kids. Well, you need to move somewhere else. But most of us can live in the city and reach and serve our city exactly where we are. When you live in the city, you serve your city. Barnabas does this in a couple ways. One I have said is his presence there. But Barnabas also knew that people needed to be disciple. Barnabas loved people. He was great at connecting people. But he wasn't the greatest at maybe you know, discipling them in a certain way. So what does he do? He's not all worried about his ego and about his pride. He gets up and he goes and gets the guy that he knows is the best at it. He gets this guy named Paul. He brings Paul back to the city and hands a whole section of his ministry over to the guy who would do it better. See, the gospel teaches that the good news of Jesus is not something that just gives us personal happiness and personal peace. It's meant to change us. And it's meant to change us into a new humanity and create a whole Christian counterculture that engages the world around it, not always judges the world around it that we live in sacrificial service. Our presence in the world was meant to bring the healing grace of Jesus. That's what it was meant to bring. It's interesting, whenever Jesus seemed to get next to like a, like a big city, his heart starts to break over it. Like, he looks at Jerusalem, like, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you only knew the things I had in store for you. In the Old Testament, God sends this guy named Jonah, you know Jonah and the big fish, God sends Jonah to a city called Nineveh. To Nineveh. And in Nineveh, Jonah gets there. He's like, those people are horrible. They're awful. They're, they're just terrible people. I, I don't want to go there. And this is what God says. There are 120,000 people in Nineveh that don't know the dance moves. He says, so, you know, I want you to go there. They don't know the right hand from their left. Should I not be filled with compassion for that great city? That's what God says. We need to feel the same way about our city. Should we not be filled with compassion for our city because God is filled with compassion for our city? That's the heart of God. We must be a people who live that. And if you learn anything from the book of Acts, it should be the understanding of God's call to be his presence in the world because our presence matters. It means we live and love those who love Jesus and live and love those who don't. So eventually all people will know who Jesus is and will come and live and love and worship him. We are called to be God's presence in the world. And I know sometimes it's really hard. It's really hard. It's, it's like twisting people's arms sometimes to, to get them to do the little dance moves. You know, it's like, oh my goodness. You have nothing to be embarrassed about. You have everything to speak about the great grace that has saved you about. You get to speak of the story of what God has done in your life. You get to be physically present with others because God has become physically present with you when you believe in Jesus. That's why God gives you the Holy Spirit. So you become his witnesses to the world. We live in a way that the world would know because God has first brought his presence to us. When we talk about communion every week, it's the reminder that Jesus came in the flesh. 
God came to be present with us. That's why you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. And Jesus rises from the grave and he sends his spirit. So now we still have his presence. And we're meant to go and live out that presence. Don't let everything distract you from the mission that God has called you to. Live the life here, now, serving others in your city that God has placed you within. The band's going to come up. As I do, you take communion to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer about any of this, about living as God's presence in the world, they'd love to pray with you about that. But what I, but what I also like to talk about, because I get to this point and I talk about you know, giving and stuff. We, we always open up, giving is part of our worship. That's why there's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back. We give something because God's given to us. But today is kind of this reflection and understanding of that Planting Roots remix thing. It's, it's the idea that we believe that God has called us to be a presence in, in our city. And a building doesn't make us a presence in the city. Don't think that we're saying that. What we're saying is element needs a permanent home for you and I to gather together and to be sent out and to also sometimes invite people in too, to do these things. i, I got to tell you, I, I, I pray a lot if, if God wants Element to continue when our lease is done. I'm like, because I, honestly, I never thought I would be a pastor in my life because I am such a knucklehead. And I'm always waiting for God to be like, yeah, you're done, weirdo, you know, and send me to go do something else. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for it. But as we're praying, God's like, no, no. You need to keep going. I'm like, God, do you want us to just pick up our baby in bathwater and go home? And he's like, no, let it ride. I'm like, no. So we keep moving forward. And so we believe that God gave us a vision to for Element to have a permanent home. That's what this whole thing was about. So I encourage you, if you do call Element home, kind of pray through that you know, recommitment thing. It's, it's not a legalistic thing. It's just so that we know, so we can budget. I mean, fancy that in America, budgeting. And so we can budget exactly how things are going to be. Oh, I, I have somebody I'm friends with, and they did this commitment, and they paid it off like six months ago, and they're still giving. They go, do I, do I have to fill one out? And I said, no, you don't have to. I said, but if you're going to keep giving, it'd be nice for us to know so that we can budget that out, kind of how things are going. It's, it's helpful. And throughout the Old Testament scriptures, God tells his people to budget, so we're trying. <laughs> you know? So if you would like, if you'd like to fill out one of those and put in just one of those uh, brown baskets on one of the tables in the room. And again, if you made a commitment like two years ago and you're like, things happen in your life and, and your life is kind of spiraling downwards, you need to revise your commitment down, you can do that. No one's going to judge you. I don't even know what people give. So, you know, it's, no one's going to look. Just put it, it just helps us to budget. And so we encourage you today to do that because we believe that that is also part of our worship. But again, in the end, please never feel like a building is the purpose because a building is not the purpose. Jesus is the purpose for what we do. We just believe that God's leading us to finally have a permanent home. So there's offering boxes there and the baskets on the community tables for that. We do invite you to grab something to eat in the back and maybe meet some other people and talk through some of the stuff in, you know, that we talked about today. You know, where, where do you refuse to be God's presence or where do you think you are God's presence at or what things distract you from being God's presence to people around you? What things do you use as a nice distractor so you don't have to be God's presence to people? Like, I need to talk to you. Oh, I got a call. You know, I mean, what, what, what do you have? Because <laughs> I think we all have little things in there that we need to identify and begin to work through. Things that distract us from being God's presence in the world because we are. We are. I think it's an amazing thing that God would take us as his people and allow us to do that. Because if I was God, I wouldn't use me. <laughs> I would use somebody else. I wouldn't use half of you. I wouldn't use all of you. I'd use somebody else, right? But God does. Because it's his amazing grace and goodness that rescues and saves us and calls us to be his presence. 
So again, you may sometimes mess up the dance moves. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Your God still loves you and has saved you and is still calling you home. And you get up and keep dancing. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us how to be a people who place you as center in our lives. That we would begin to understand that all the things that call our attention and our hearts away from your message and your mission are distractions. And that we would become refocused on what you are calling us into. That we would understand the power of presence. Your presence first given to us, then our presence lived out into the rest of the world around us. I ask that you would teach us to be a people who make you everything we want and everything we need. Rather than believing a whole bunch of lies that tell us what they think we need, we would simply trust you to be that everything. Move us to the place where we live lives that recognize and honor your presence in us and live out that presence in others' lives around us. Have us truly live as your children, fully in your name, so the world would know. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.